And so if you have your Bible, I'd like you to open it to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, that's page 914, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. And if you're able to, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read this morning Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And as I read, remember, we're reading God's Word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as Jesus missionaries. Amen. Maybe well, good morning, everybody. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm part of the teaching team, and I get to preach this morning. I'm pretty excited about it. One of the things that I've kind of been doing the last couple of weeks is actually have these kind of secret sermon titles that are just for me and for nobody else, but I want to share a couple of them with you. Uh, two weeks ago, I preached on uh, Ananias and Sapphira at a different church, and the sermon title, the real one, was Generosity and Hypocrisy, but my secret sermon title was Don't Talk About It, Be About It. And then the next week, uh, one of my, my friends in Tempe was preaching, and the sermon title was Can't Stop God, but his secret sermon title was Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And then this week, the sermon title is Sharing the Ministry, but my secret sermon title is Mo People, Mo Problems. So you guys kind of, that's the direction we're headed on, on that. And But this, like, this, this, the church is growing, problems start happening, and this is actually the second of um, a couple of the warnings that happen in Acts for the church, that as the church grows, the Spirit's pouring out, Good ministry is happening, and yet problems continue to arise, even though the Spirit is among us and upon us and leading us and guiding us. The first one was Ananias and Sapphira. The first problem the church encountered was hypocrisy. And the second one we see is the biggest problem the church encounters is um, uh, racial tension and poor administration. And that's kind of interesting for us as we continue. Even yesterday, uh, my wife and I just got a new house, and it's got this kind of weird, uh, you got to turn into it more difficult driveway. And like the first couple weeks we were living there we kind of six point turned it in you know and and it was kind of like this event was pulling in out of our driveway you had to like take three breaths and try and get in and out but I got pretty good pretty quickly at it and then Saturday morning my wife is like man you're really good at getting in it's going really well and then I'm thinking like yeah you know what that is good you know the the it went to my head you know and then just last night I was pulling out of my driveway and and busted the rear view mirror off, not the rear view mirror, the side mirror, got caught on the garage, I broke it off, and it was just like, maybe I need to slow down and take this, I need to take it, but, so that's kind of a, a weird illustration of saying, that's what happens here, it's a reminder of the church, you need to slow down and not get overconfident, don't let it go to your head, problems continue to arise, even, even as we as Gateway grow, and we're building a new building, and people are coming to faith, and we need to be able to pause and self-evaluate and recognize that even though the Spirit is upon us, even though the gospel is shaping us, even though we're sitting under the word, Problems still arise and still 
um, happen. And so we're going to look at uh, here uh, from Luke in the book of Acts and three big things that happen here. Um, the first one is there's complaints. And so we're going to have a conversation about complaints. What are complaints? What complaints should be taken seriously? What complaints should we um, put away and repent of? And we're going to look at commissions, the response to those complaints. People are sent into ministry and mobilized to do a really cool thing and helping solve the answer to those complaints. And then the result of the church navigating this obstacle is actually conversions. People obey the faith. They repent and believe. They come up under the lordship of Jesus as a result of the church being faithfully led by the Spirit. So I'm going to pray and we're going to walk through this text and uh, we'll keep going. Father, we want to learn from you. More than the words I say, uh, I pray that your spirit translates uh, both the words of scripture and my words so that it impacts the heart of every individual here. I pray that as a result of sitting under your word, we become more humble, not more arrogant. We become more sensitive to uh, the oppressed, not less sensitive. I pray that uh, we'd sense your spirit and be encouraged and challenged as a result of coming in here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's look at Acts 6, verse 1 through kind of two and a half. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, people are coming to faith, Signs and wonders are being done. People are repenting and believing. The church is growing. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So this is a huge theme in the book of Acts. It's a huge theme in Paul's letters. It's this, there's these Greeks and these Jews and these Hebrews and they're coming together and becoming one people because of the gospel. So the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. So now most Jews, about 80% of them, 80 to 90% of them spoke Hebrew. And so they'd pray in Hebrew, they'd read in Hebrew, they'd speak amongst each other in Hebrew, but there's this minority group within the Jews called the Hellenists who don't know Hebrew, they actually know Greek. And the Hebrews had this temptation of constantly looking down on them because their language was less holy and less pure than Hebrew. And so this tension between the Greeks and the Hebrews was pretty commonly understood. It was a big deal. And even before biblical times, people were acknowledging this was a problem. And a huge theme in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts is that there's no longer two, but there's one. That Jews and Greeks are united. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. No hierarchy remains. It's not that the Hebrews are closer because they speak Hebrew. It's not that the Greeks are further because they speak Greek. But rather, there's no hierarchy in God's kingdom between the Jews and the Greeks. And so this ethnic racial minority, the Hellenists, coming together into an, another majority culture um, and problems arise consistently and frequently. It happens to a number of the disciples. It happens and is mentioned in a number of Paul's letters. And right here, this is actually a bit of a turning point in the book of Acts. Up to this point, Acts 1 through 5, almost all of the ministry has been done to Hebrews. But now what we see is guys like Stephen and Greeks actually get appointed leadership. And now in the book of Acts, there's a bit of a tipping point from ministry primarily to Hebrews to now ministry primarily to the Greeks through Paul and another of the apostles and disciples. And so this is a bit of a pivot point, mostly Hebrews to now Jews are being grafted, now the Greeks are being grafted in and the church is growing this way. And we're naive if we think that just because the Spirit is present, just because people are coming to believe the gospel, that they all of a sudden have no biases whatsoever, but what happens here is this minority culture of Hellenists, about 10 to 20%, become Christians and are worshiping with and alongside the Hebrews. And a complaint arises. Because 
the complaint is because the widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. So widows in this context um, can be understood as just vulnerable people. Um, widows in the first century had very little means, if any, to earn an income and provide for themselves. So they're absolutely dependent on the providence of other people. And so widows nowadays can actually get jobs and uh, it's still hard to be a widow. I'm not minimizing that at all. But now the people who are the most vulnerable aren't necessarily only widows and orphans. But we can think about the unborn uh, adoption in foster care, um, in general minorities within a majority culture. And so when you see the word widows here, think about just generally vulnerable people, especially widows, but also other vulnerable people. And so they'd gather together after the people had given to the church and the people would distribute um, as people had need to the people who could no longer provide for themselves. But the Hellenists are complaining because their widows are being neglected or overlooked or not included in the daily distribution. That's shocking when you think about the spirit of God is on them and they're neglecting a whole racial ethnic minority group. That should kind of cause us to give pause that they weren't even aware of this. It makes it seem like it wasn't an intentional overlooking but an implicit bias where they just kind of happened to overlook the minority. This should really give us pause because most of the way that we encounter injustice, we're not aware of, especially if you're like me and are really privileged in the majority culture. And so when I wanna, I wanna talk about this. What, what type of complaint should we look at? Because if you're like me, you see the word complaint, and most of the time I think about people who are complaining and I think that they're necessarily in the wrong. But there's actually about five types of complaints that I was able to kind of think through. Um, some of them I pulled from different blog posts, but when I see them in scripture, um, there's a couple that just need to be repented of, types of complaints, and some that need to be acted on. The first one, first type of complaint is grumbling and murmuring. This is just having a bad attitude. Um, these are people who just kind of walk around finding things to be unhappy about. No matter how well the day's going, they're like, yes, but this, or yeah, but that, or the church is great except for that one thing, or this is all going well except for this other thing I have going on. These people love calling themselves realists, but really they just need to repent. It's not, it's not a positive thing to be a complainer. When the Spirit of the Lord is upon you and you've received more than you've ever could dare dream that you earn or you're thankful for or even that you have earned in any capacity when you recognize that all of life is a gift from God you don't walk around with just negative lenses on trying to poke holes in things some people can put that hat on every now and then if it's their job if they're like a, um, a an analyst and it's their job to expose potential issues but hopefully you don't walk around your life just being negative so a bad attitude people who are complainers by nature if that's you take a minute and just ask for forgiveness right now Next one. Violations, next one is violations of preference. This is, I don't like onions on my cheeseburger. Onions came on my cheeseburger. It's not a sin not to like onions, but it's kind of a sin to make a big deal about it and ruin everyone else's day because onions came on your cheeseburger. Like this is more about recognizing you're allowed to have preferences, but don't let them interfere with relationships and get a lot of things like that. Most of us, when we complain about church, it's almost always preferences. The music is like this, I like it like this. The guy stood like this when he's preaching. I like him to stand like this when he's preaching, whatever it is. Um, Three, violations of conscience. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 14. These are the things that just might feel wrong to us, but we don't necessarily have like a biblical verse for it. Um, Talking about the weaker Christians who can't eat the food uh, that's given to idols, even though the idols are totally false. Some Christians, I can't do that because of what's going on. A lot of this can have to do with our our view of like the type of movies and entertainment we take in, and we should just recognize that that's a conscience situation, not necessarily um, even a preference or even a conviction. So these are kind of escalating as we 
go down. Hopefully you see that. Um, and the fourth one is convictions. So we as a church have a conviction um, that baptism follows conversion, but there's many other churches that have a conviction that you can baptize infants. Um, and so that's an example of something that we're willing to agree to disagree on, but it's pretty, we hold that one pretty tight. Um, you're, you're allowed to be a member here if you have a different conviction, but we're going to stand pretty firm on that. And so people who have a hard time um, recognizing some of our biblical convictions, some people are able to be here really well, some people go to other churches, and that's okay too, and we love those other churches, but this is kind of when you're convinced the Bible teaches this, and it's kind of a, 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 something you're passionate about and not willing just to like kind of say, well, this is just a preference, it's kind of big. And the fifth one is a violation of justice. This is when God's design for image bearers to flourish and have certain unalienable rights to quote a constitution is minimized or diminished. And this is what's happening here. They're not going, I would prefer it if you weren't racists. <laughs> They're not saying, it's my biblical opinion that you wouldn't overlook us. This is a strong case for justice being done. In particular, this type of complaint is voicing one that has to do with acknowledging and seeing a violation of justice or that there exists injustice. And I think we as, a, we as a church, we as Christians have a responsibility to act on these humanitarian, what it means to be an image of God level issues. So think through that list of five things and just take a second and think through what do you usually complain about? Which on those five? If you're anything like me, I live in that one and two range most of the time. And those are something that I really have to acknowledge and repent of just being a complainer as opposed to an intercessor who's standing up for biblical truth and standing up for justice everywhere, that four and five range. Hopefully we as a church can be quick to complain about things in four and five and really slow and repentant about complaining about things, especially in one and two. Uh, do you have a com complaining attitude? Because this is kind of like a boy who cried wolf situation. That if they just, like what if these widows just went around complaining about the volume of the harp and then now, now there's a real complaint and they're taken less seriously. We need to be selective in what we ra raise flags about and be ready to uh, listen to it. So these, there's five types of complaints and the next thing I want us to look at is four ways to respond to injustice. Now, I'm gonna quote a lot of a guy named Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know if he was a civil rights uh, activist in the mid last century, and he did a really good job pushing on and making uncomfortable the white majority culture, in particular Christians. So me and a good majority of you guys. In particular, he wrote a letter called the letter from Birmingham jail when he was in jail and he was getting critiques from a bunch of white pastors saying, I wish you would stop doing what you're doing. It's kind of causing a ruckus. And so he writes a letter from Birmingham jail about different ways that the white majority church does a poor job at responding to this injustice. And I'm going to pull out three things um, about how to negatively respond to injustice using Martin Luther King quotes. And so this will probably push you because it really pushed me and I'm assuming that a lot of you are at least somewhat similar to me. All right, so the first wrong response is to deny the injustice. 
to say that's not an injustice. If you would just speak Hebrew and not Greek, this, would not, this problem would go away. Um, you can solve this on your own. You don't need us. It's not really an issue. This is just kind of something else. You're just looking for attention. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. says this. He says, we know through painful experience, he's talking about in world history, not just in the 50s in the civil rights movement. In world history, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntary given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. And here's why that happens. is because when the majority culture, when the status quo, when the way that things are generally serves you, things generally serve me right now. It's really easy to go about your life thinking there's no problems, things are going fine for me, therefore things must be going fine for everybody. We need people who are being oppressed or people who are being overlooked or people who are being uh, mishandled or put to the side. It takes courage for them to speak up and say things might be good for you but things are less good for me and here's why. And so because the oppressor accidentally or on purpose tends to think that what they're doing is fine, it requires the person who's getting the bottom of the boot to stand up and say no more. And it's really difficult for people who are privileged by the way things are to actually listen and hear that critique of them. The second thing we can do that's wrong is deflect. In particular, deflect responsibility. Um, so we're kind of, this is slightly better than deny. Denying is saying there is no problem. Deflect is saying there is a problem, but it's not my problem. Um, and so Martin Luther King said this, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. That's kind of crazy. He's writing from a prison. He has no dictionary thesaurus, and he's just ripping these words out like that. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structures got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than men. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. We at Redemption, every week, say all of life is all for Jesus. All of it. That the gospel, that Jesus comes in the flesh, lives a sinless life, dies substitutionary death on the cross, and rises victoriously from the grave, and he is now, by his spirit, making all things new, not souls, all things. 
that if we say for a minute that yes, injustice is happening, but no, the church has nothing to do with that, we are minimizing our view of the gospel and settling for some otherworldly religion that doesn't meet us in the here and now. That God created this world, this is my father's world, that he is making this world new and our mission must engage all forms of evil, injustice and impression that we see all over the place. That the goal of the church is not just to get souls out of hell and into heaven, but it's to get hell off of earth. That the kingdom of God is pushing back the gates of hell, trying to keep the brokenness where it is. That when the spirit sends us out, we cannot settle for saying that's not our problem. Let the gates of hell stay closed. The the third way that we can uh, incorrectly respond to injustice is delay. So this is slightly better still. We went from saying there's no problem to there is a problem, but it's not my problem, to thirdly, there is a problem, but it's not really a pressing problem. We'll deal with it later. Uh, King says this, for years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor, nor the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. We know your widows are being overlooked. It'll get on our agenda next year. Uh, There's one way that we can respond correctly to injustice, and that's the fourth way here, and that's do something. Do something. They take the complaint of injustice very seriously. They gather together the apostles. They make a plan. They say, it's not even necessarily that there's individuals who are being racist, but it's their collective implicit biases that for years and years and years before they were Christians led them to view Jew, that you view Hebrews as better than Hellenists, that now there's this accidental systemic overlooking happening. And so rather than saying, we need to just preach a sermon about it, they produce a new system, a new plan where they elevate these Hellenists to ministry, and so they commit to doing something. They summon together the people, they listen well, they take it seriously, they prayerfully make a plan, and here's what happens, is their solution is to commission more ministry owners. So this is kind of verses two through six. Commissions, they hear the complaints, and as a solution to dealing with those complaints, they commission people. And here's what they say. And said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And these names in this next section, in verse five, are all Hellenistic names. So it's a minority group, the Hellenists, in the midst of um, a Hebrew group, and in order to preserve this problem, they, have, they po- appoint to leadership the minorities within that environment. Because you're the ones who feel the complaint, we're going to let you be the ones to solve the complaint. Because you're closer to it, you feel it, you recognize it, and we're going to um, mobilize you to do that. And so these guys, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, 
and then other people. You can imagine what it'd feel like to be like Philip and Prochorus, like Stephen, this man, and these other guys. You know, like Stephen was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then five, six other guys that maybe were or weren't. But it just, so one of the reasons that Stephen's really highlighted there is in the next couple of chapters, Stephen plays a huge role. And part of this is like doing history, like where'd Stephen come from? This is where he came from. There is a need, and he stepped up. And then later on, he preached. He served before he led. He helped meet needs before he preached sermons. And so there's kind of like, it's demonstrating his humble and willing heart to be used however God needs him before he needed to be on stage uh, leading anything. So kind of one one important point here is, uh, you can put the next slide up there, is it'd be really easy from this section to think that what the apostles are doing is saying, now, 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 we have the most important job and that's preaching the word and we're not going to give up that most important job to get busy doing other less important jobs. But actually here, kind of what they're doing is saying something totally different to that. So see those two words that are highlighted. It's not that right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables in that last sentence, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word behind those two English words in Greek is actually the same word. It's the word from where we get the, the word deacon in English. And uh, Deacon can mean serve, it can mean ministry, it can mean courier or carrier. Most basically, it's someone who is taking something that somebody else made and bringing it to them. And so kind of what you see saying here is the apostles going, listen, they're going to be serving up bread that someone else made, we're going to be serving up bread of life that somebody else wrote. And so they're kind of saying, you're serving in this capacity, we're serving in this capacity. We serve up the word, you serve up the deed. And so what they're saying is, in a sense, we can't do it all. We can't serve tables well and preach the word well. We need more ministry owners, more people who say, this is my responsibility, more people who shoulder the burden of carrying the mission of the church forward than just these 12. And so one key point here is that there's not a hierarchy in God's mission, but there's a partnership in God's mission of both word and deed, that these things go together, that they witness well, they complement each other, and they move things forward. A second point here is that as the church grows... It needs more people who own the ministry, who lead in a variety of capacities, who go from just doing nothing to owning and saying, this is my responsibility. When uh, I had a group of friends help move my stuff, which thank them so much for doing that. None of them are here today, so I don't really need to thank them that much, but they helped me move my stuff. There's like this team of like 15 people. They're carrying my couch and stuff like that, and a bunch of stuff got beaten up in a way that if I was moving it, wouldn't have happened. Now, I'm not going to like throw a fit about it because they helped me move and it was really great. But at the same time, there's a different way you carry something when it's yours versus when it's something else, someone else's. And a lot of people carry things, come to this church as though it's somebody else's stuff that we're just kind of helping shuffle around. You can serve in a great capacity and not be an owner. Treats it like it's your own. Treats it like it's my responsibility to be a part of it. A lot of people at Gateway serve in a really, really big capacity. They kind of have deacon-type roles. Uh, if you want to kind of know more about how we use that word deacon and why we at Gateway don't have like an official deacon office, we actually have a blog that went up this morning on our website that you can check out and learn more about how different churches handle the role of deacon. We do have elders formally, but we don't have deacons formally. And there's a blog post that talks about that if you're really interested in that. Um, if you're not and you just have nothing to do, you can read that too. Um, but there is... Uh, we have a lot of people who carry and own a lot of ministry here, and that's one of the things that makes this church really, really good. 
But I want to talk for a second to people who aren't ministry owners. Talk to you guys. In the next 24 months-ish, we're going to need about 36 more middle school and high school mentors. We're going to need about 60 more children's volunteers and and, uh, classroom leaders. We're going to need about 40 more small group RC leaders. And that's just three of the spheres. So really, as we grow, if we add 1,000 people in the next two years when we get into a new building, which is not unrealistic, as the church grows, more people, more problems, we need more and more people to go from being consumers at church to owners at church. And here's a primary reason why I think many, many people don't serve and don't own and don't lead in the church. And it's because they have this view of themselves that's never could I ever blank. I can never lead an RC. I can never make a difference in the lives of kids serving in kids ministry. I could never serve on guest services. I could never fill in the blank. And I want those of you who aren't serving and aren't owning, I really want you to repent of your I could nevers. You must repent of it. Because when you say I could never, what you're saying is the spirit of God could never. What you're saying is I'm gonna put a limit on what God can use me to do. The whole book of Acts, the whole book of Acts is story after story of God taking hard-hearted, stiff-necked, uneducated, unequipped people and mobilizing them and equipping them through the church and through the spirit to make significant kingdom impact. And if you're not an owner, if you're not serving, if you think I can't make a difference, I can just barely show up, I'm telling you right now, the Holy Spirit wants to repent for you putting a ceiling on yourself that is from Satan, not from the Spirit. God uses everyone to accomplish his mission in a variety of different capacities. So what does it look like to take the next step? These guys um, get appointed. These guys uh, get kind of testified to. And so there's two things here, path to commissioning. The first one is get known. We as a church are committed so committed to doing ministry relationally. We want everyone who leads in any capacity, serves in any capacity, to be known and to known, to, to know other people and to be known. What they say here is pick people of good repute. That means that they're well testified about, that, they're, that the people in, who know them witness well to their character. In order to be known, you have to be in community. You have to be in community, connected relationally, because if you're just a silo by yourself, we cannot appoint you because you're not testified well about because you have not testified at all about. So if you're going, I think I need to be used by God, I think God wants to use me to serve the church, I think God wants to use me as an owner, carrying the ministry forward, really, the best first step you can take, even if you haven't taken another step, is to go to start here class and get plugged into RC. Because when you get known and you're connected and in a relationship, that's when we actually know who people are and we're actually able to testify to their character and not just to their knowledge. The second thing is to get mature, full of the spirit and wisdom. People who are full of the spirit are wise. I know some people who think they're full of the spirit and they're really just full of youthful unabandonment. They just go running around saying full of the spirit, doing really unwise, stupid stuff all the time. They're not full of the spirit. When you're full of the spirit, you are wise. This is one and the same. 
Um, when you're full of the Spirit, you are wise. And so this way of growing with maturity and being built up into the faith, being filled with the Spirit, um, I want to consistently be more known and grow in my maturity as a man of God right now. Seth Trout wants to do that. I want to grow in being known by people. That has to do with authenticity and engaging a community authentically. And also, I want to grow in maturity because I know that the other alternatives are uh, really negative. But here's kind of my point, is if you view yourself as I never could ever, when ministry training opportunities pop up, you're gonna say, that's not for me, that training would be wasted on me. I don't want us to take up a seat in that class because that could be someone else who will actually do something. But if you view yourself as a future leader, a future ministry owner, someone who with a little training can make a difference, then when training opportunities, classes, those type of things come up, you by the spirit can say yes and invest in yourself as a future contributor in God's kingdom. So kind of different ways is some people um, want to skip step one and they come in and they're super zealous. I call them over eager beavers. You know, they're like, I'm here, let me lead, give me something to be in charge of. And that's a a lack of humility. And uh, we really want to encourage everyone, no matter how eager and zealous they are, to be known before they're commissioned. And the other side is this kind of false humility, like, uh, I can never really be used. And even though that in one sense could be considered humility, but humility is not thinking that you're nothing. Humility is thinking that God is everything. So they're commissioned, these people are laid on hands, verse six, they set before them the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. People who are growing in maturity and people who uh, were known by the people. So what happens? What's the result of when the church is uh, faithful? So it's really easy here at this point to really think about what's most important here because there's a variety of things happen. So what was your flinch when you read this passage? What was the most important thing that happened? First time I read it, I thought, good of the apostles to set healthy boundaries to make sure they preach good sermons. That was my first thought. Part of that's my flinch towards being a preacher. A lot of people read this and go, way to make sure that people are cared for. That's a big deal. We need to make sure we're caring for people well. Even we as a church are constantly trying to develop our care ministry in really profound ways. Um, Dale, our counseling and care pastor, has been putting in a lot of work to make sure we have a really good care system to supplement RCs in a really cool way. And if you're interested in being involved in that, write it on your Connect card and drop it in there and Dale will contact you. Uh, the care, people getting cared for, that's really important. Racial reconciliation, that's really important. Uh, those of you who are administrative managerial types, you're going, this is great, they're eliminating waste. This is such a more efficient system. This is better. This is delegation of resources. This is a product, productive thing. And some people go, I just like that they talked it out and it didn't continue as a conflict, kind of the peacemaker type of people. And you go, so which is most important here? Which is preeminent? And that question by itself actually is the wrong question to be asking. I've never been to a symphony because it doesn't really sound interesting to me, but you, those of you who go to symphonies and you know the violin, the cello, the other things, there's a conductor at the front, that all these different instruments are in harmony with, with one another, uh, really kind of singing one song. That if you walk away from the, the symphony going, oh, what a nice violin solo. Like that's like something you say at a rock concert, not at a symphony. What a nice solo they played. Uh, and a lot of times we think about the church as like a rock band and not like a symphony. This is a, something that Jim Mullins, one of our pastors at Tempe said. We think of like there's like the lead guy and he's singing and it's really whatever. And then there's some other people and there's background dancers. Like when you go to, you know, a, a Lady Gaga concert, there's like, it's the Lady Gaga show and background dancers. And that's how we 
think about it, is how was the thing and then the background dancers. But really we need to think about it in terms of a symphony where there's one conductor who is the Holy Spirit and every instrument when it's playing as it's supposed to be played sounds off with one voice. That people with gifts of care are caring. People with gifts of preaching are preaching. People with gifts of music are musicking. People, people who are hospitable are being hospitable. That everybody, based on how God's made them, are using their gifts and are singing and testifying with one voice and one witness pushing back the gates of hell. That the church is more like a symphony. These diverse voices, these diverse gifts, these diverse backgrounds, these diverse cultures coming together, witnessing all as one, and the conductor gets all the credit. And when we look at this, saying which part of the ministry is most important is missing the whole point. The point is, is we serve a big God who created this world, that this is my father's world, and though it remains broken, he is undoing all types of brokenness in all types of spheres, in all types of places, as the church is faithful by the Spirit. That when we holistically image the holistic gospel, the the church is faithful and people come to faith. This is what happens in verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase. And so the language here really makes it seem like as the result of what just happened, the symptom is that the word of God continues to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Think about it. Who are the least likely people you know to become Christians? maybe individual names, types of people. These priests were people who were complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're seeing the racial reconciliation. They're seeing the navigation of conflict. They're seeing the spirit pour out and raise up minorities to be in positions of power in a growing church. And the priests are going, what's going on there? I need to be a part of it. That it's this compelling witness to the unbelieving world when we're faithful in all that God's called us to do. We as a church cannot minimize any aspect of what God has called us to do. When Jesus says, go and make disciples in all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded to you, when we are faithfully participating in God's mission by obeying all that he has commanded to us by the power of the Spirit, that's when the vehicle of the church is running most effectively and it's the most compelling and people want to be a part of it. And so this conversions that happen, these souls coming to faith, becoming obedient to the faith that is this body of doctrine that is the gospel, these people believe the gospel, they repent and believe and they become a part of the church because it's faithfully witnessing to all that God has done to reconcile all people to himself. That when we reconcile horizontally, we are pointing to the fact that Jesus in the flesh reconciled us to the God, the Father, vertically, that we who were once far off have been brought near, that we who once were rebels in the kingdom of God are now participants in the kingdom of God, that we who once were hard-hearted and stiff-necked, he has now made servants in his kingdom, that we who shook our hand at God instead, I can do it on my own, I'm an autonomous human being, I can create wrong and wrong for myself, God has softened our hearts by the spirit and we are no longer at odds with the father, even though he was holy and we were unholy, that the only one who was holy, he took on our sin that we could become his righteousness and reconciliation spiritually and eternally has happened and God is now blessing us holistically and when we reconcile with one another well across all types of lines, we bear witness to the reconciliation of the gospel of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. And I hope that we as a people can see a couple of things from this passage. First, that we'd acknowledge our flinch that we really wanna preserve the status quo when it serves us. 
Second, that we become listeners to people when they feel and are oppressed. And third, that we would not minimize any one part of ministry, but rather recognize that all of it, like one symphony, bears witness to the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel. I hope you have a big vision for yourself as a contributor in God's kingdom because the spirit is a large contributor, the largest contributor in God's kingdom and he's in you and working in you. And there's no reason to put a limit on yourself or to put a limit on the church because the spirit is at work in the midst of our brokenness and in our unfaithfulness. Let me pray and we can respond. Father, thank you for your grace that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, that you are creating us to be a people who are like a symphony, who with one voice point to you in harmony with one another. I pray that we can be listeners, slow to speak and quick to listen, and that we as a church will uh, step up when needs arise, individually and corporately. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. Thank you for your word which shapes us and tells us how to live. Uh, I pray that we can increasingly become thankful for your grace, your good gospel which makes all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.